Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, Easter, according to the Gospel of John, with a message titled, Authority and Suffering. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 18, verses 1 to 12, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Some time ago, a fellow Christian was relating to me a story. He was having his hair cut by a Muslim young man, and this man began to tell him how foolish he thought the Christian faith was. He said the idea that a man of God would be captured and tortured and crucified and not protected by God is foolishness. You know, one of the saddest features of Islam is its statement about the cross. Islam states that it is inappropriate that a prophet of God should come to such an ignominious end. See, the Quran states, and here I quote it, And they're saying, surely we have killed the Messiah, Issa, the son of Miriam, the apostle of Allah. And they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but it appeared to them so. And most surely, those who differ therein are only in a doubt about it. They have no knowledge respecting it, but only follow a conjecture, and they killed him not for sure. See, the commonly held belief among Muslims is that either Judas or Simon of Cyrene was switched for Jesus, but Jesus, according to Islam, was not crucified. And the reason for that is that Muslims do not believe that it's possible for a man of God to be defeated in this way. But that's just the point of the story. Jesus was not defeated. I know that seems hard to comprehend. You see, when we suffer, be it physically or psychologically, financially, or because we've been defeated by our enemies, you know, that kind of suffering is the signal that we've lost that we fail to maintain control. And it's surprising for many to view the sufferings of Christ from the perspective of the absolute power and authority of Christ. But that's exactly what John wants us to see in the telling story about Gethsemane. I'm reading John 18, 3 to 11. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now you're going to notice that John's description of Jesus' night on the Mount of Olives does not mention what's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. See, the agonizing night of prayer, as Luke describes his sweat becoming drops of blood falling to the ground, that's not mentioned in John. And since John was among the three that personally witnessed that event, well, it leaves us somewhat curious. I mean, why does John leave that out? You know, one answer assuredly is that John was taking for granted that those reading this book were already familiar with that part of the story. But then again, they were also familiar with the fact that Jesus was arrested And John includes that. So why not take the time to mention that account again? You know, the answer has to be that John wants to show us something that we might miss if we're not careful. You know, in taking us directly to the arrest, 
He wants us to hear his point, a point that we must notice. He wants us to see just how Jesus was in control of everything that happened that night. You know, in our study yesterday, we noticed then that he had entered a walled garden where there was no way of escape. We also noticed that he went to the place where Judas was sure to find him. But as Jesus takes steps to ensure that he's arrested, no one believes that this is what he's up to. Judas has procured a band of soldiers, and actually the Greek says he received a cohort or a Roman cohort. And a cohort was a band of 600 soldiers, although some commentators think that it you know, might have been smaller, perhaps only 200 soldiers. Well, I think it's very likely it was 600 soldiers that set out after Jesus for at least two reasons. First, it was Passover, and if you'll remember, Passover was a time when the Jews celebrated deliverance from foreign oppressors, and it was a celebration that made the Romans nervous. So every Passover, the Romans would move the majority of their soldiers from Caesarea, you know, where they were stationed throughout most of the year, and they'd put them into the Antonio Fortress in Jerusalem. So Rome was already on high alert during the Passover, and that a large contingent of soldiers, 600, was readily available, well, that seems quite likely. And secondly, please notice that in order to protect Paul, back in Acts 23, verse 23, it indicates that they had got 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen as a bodyguard. That equaled 470 men. In other words, the Romans were known to often use overwhelming force to intimidate their enemies to ensure that there would be very little resistance. So it seems likely then that a full Roman cohort of 600 men were sent during Passover along with a Jewish temple guard to arrest Jesus. And even though it's the Passover, which would happen during full moon, yet still they take lanterns and torches along with all the weapons they would need. And no doubt they must have thought that Jesus might attempt to hide among the olive grove. And so here's the contrast. A Roman and Jewish guard led by Judas, assuming that Jesus would run, and Jesus positioning himself so that he can be caught as quickly as possible. And that's why John doesn't tell us about the agonizing prayer. He wants us to focus on that part of the amazing scene. Next, unless we missed it, John adds verse 4a. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. See, the real question is, how long did Jesus know that? Well, the answer is that he knew it from eternity past. You know, when the apostle Peter addresses that matter, he speaks about Christ the Lamb crucified for us. And then he adds words in 1 Peter 1 verse 20. He says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And God also expressed that matter in the prophets. Isaiah 53 verse 7, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. See, in other words, these things were known to Jesus. He went to Jerusalem and then to the Mount of Olives to be led to the slaughter. He was fulfilling the plan of God. And that's why what happens next shouldn't really surprise us. As the soldiers enter the garden armed with weapons and torches, Jesus simply steps out of the trees, walks right up and says, whom do you seek? Oh, there must be a stunned pause. This is the last thing that anyone would have thought would happen. They were expecting a chase, a man hiding among the trees, and then the, the shouting to one another, perhaps armed resistance, and then the eventual capture. Instead, this quiet, calm man stepping out of the shadows, whom do you want? And they simply answer, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, at least that's how it reads in our English translation. It says, I am he. 
You see, in the Greek, and that's fascinating, it simply says, ego eimi, or I am. And with that, the entire cohort, the temple guard in shock, draws back and falls to the ground. See, this incident has led many to wonder what in fact happened here. But I think the entire incident can be explained by those two little words, I am, ego eimi. You know, back in John 8, Jesus was engaged in a heated debate with the Jewish religious leaders, and the entire debate boils down to one question, and here's the question. Who do you make yourself to be? And after some discussion, Jesus simply answers, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Notice he doesn't say that he predated Abraham. He claims that he is self-existent, always existing. He's claiming a title that comes from Exodus 3, verse 14, in which God himself identifies himself as the I am. Clearly, John 8, 58 is a claim of the deity of Jesus, that Jesus himself is God in human flesh. And then throughout the book of John, John is careful to record for us seven separate, what we call the I am sayings in John. Sayings like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door to the sheep and so forth. Every time Jesus says, I am, he's indicating his authority that he comes as God in human form. Now then, please don't think that when Jesus says, I am in the garden, that the soldiers then say, oh, wow, he's claiming to be God. And so they draw back and fall over. No, no, that's not what happened. Instead, understand it in terms of the ministry of Jesus. He needs only to speak his name, and he feeds 5,000. He needs only to speak his name, and he walks on the water or calls a dead man to step out of his tomb. You see, that's the authority that he has, and now he speaks with equal authority that night in Gethsemane. And as he says, I am, he causes the armed cohort of hardened Roman fighting soldiers who have come to arrest him to fall to the ground. Such is the authority of our Lord, even in his sufferings. You know, some things don't mix. Oil and water, plaids and polka dots. It's not that these couplings never occur, but our minds don't really readily pair them. The same holds true with our pains and joys, both expected, but we rarely consider them as simultaneous. But God adjusts our thinking. The Bible reminds us that joy can be found in trials and our tears can be turned into laughter. It's not instant or self-generating, but a matter of God's grace working within us, like gold refined in fire joy can be found in the midst of struggle. So to encourage you as our free gift this month, we want to send you a combo CD series from Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again called Joy in Tough Times. Five messages from Dr. John in five joy-filled Laugh Again episodes. Joy in Tough Times, our free gift to you just for calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. John tells the story of Jesus' arrest as the account, you know, of one who controls the arrest. Indeed, he controls all things on that night. That must also mean that he has dominion over all his enemies. That is, all Jesus needs to say is, ego eimi, I am. And a Roman cohort lies fallen at his feet. And that, by the way, is the reason why Peter, who will later deny Jesus out of raw fear, 
you know, at that moment, feels the courage to draw his sword. Peter is sensing a moment of supreme victory. And you remember that he was the one who rebuked Jesus as Jesus spoke about his sufferings. You will also remember that the disciples fully expected Jesus as their Messiah to sit on the throne of David and then completely defeat the Roman oppressors of Israel. And now with his one word, you know, that causes these battle-hardened men to fall to the ground, Peter senses an advantage. He's ready for the fight. And what better time can there be than during Passover to see the greatest deliverance of Israel from all times? He's ready for the fight. He's ready for a stunning victory. You and I need to imagine the scene. You know, according to Luke 22, verse 38, the disciples had two swords. You know, it's not surprising that Peter made sure that he would have one of them and the other 10 guys would share the final one. He has a sword and he's ready for glory. And with his first wild swing, he manages to hack off a man's right ear. (laughs) That's not going to make the list of the, you know, the greatest moments in sports history, but it's a start. And if Jesus gives another one of his authoritative words, well, maybe next time he's going to find the mark. But we know the outcome. It leads us to ask the question, why does Jesus use this force of authority on the men who have come to arrest him? Is he really being tempted to wipe them out? I mean, you're going to remember how at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus was being tempted by Satan while he's in the wilderness of Judea, not to go the way of the cross, rather to go the way of power. Or is Jesus really telling all these men that have come to arrest him, you know, I could wipe you out with one little word if I wanted to. I just thought you should know. No, no, I don't think he's doing anything like that. I'm quite sure it's not about that. Indeed, as the entire theme of John is developing, I mean, the theme of Christ's authority during his arrest, we we should now see how it is that Jesus uses his authority. See, notice in verse 8 that he demands that the authorities let his disciples go. Have you ever wondered why, when Jesus was arrested and crucified, why the authorities didn't arrest and crucify the disciples with him? I mean, why not clean up the entire Jesus problem in one fell swoop? But they didn't. And John's telling us why that didn't happen. Jesus didn't use his authority to defend himself. I mean, after all, his mission was to come and be crucified and to die. Instead, he uses his authority in defense of his disciples. Now to verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So you'll remember that just before these events, as Jesus was in the upper room praying, you know, he'd been praying these words. It's John 17, verse 12. Jesus prays, Father, I have guarded them. And then verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Jesus was not praying that the disciples wouldn't suffer. He was praying that they would be eternally safe, that is, that they would persevere in their love for him. Yeah, that's true. But in fact, as the disciples watched the scene of Jesus' trial and his crucifixion and the death that unfolded, the disciples are crushed. You know, if they had been arrested then, their faith would have crumbled in a second. You know, John Calvin, in reflecting on this scene, says, Christ continually bears with our weakness when he puts himself forward to repel so many attacks of Satan and wicked men because he sees that we are not yet able or prepared for them. In other words, Christ only brings us to the place of battle when he has readied us for the conflict. The time of persecution would come to the disciples. They too would bear their own crosses. Indeed, Peter himself would end up 
crucified in Rome, but at that moment he was completely unprepared. And Jesus, knowing how vulnerable his disciples were, simply used his authority to provide an opportunity for his disciples not to be arrested during this time. I wonder if you and I have ever taken the time to think about all those times when, you know, Christ has kept us from our own hours of trial because that trial at that time in our lives, in that place, would have utterly crushed us. And so he uses his might and authority on our behalf. I mean, how often have you been shielded? Have you thought about that? How often has Christ intervened for you? I wonder, when we come home to glory, how often we will see those events. But let's see two more uses of Christ's authority in the garden. We find it in verses 10 and 11. That's the incident of Peter cutting off the ear of the man named Malchus. And we're going to have to think about that for a moment and what's implied in those words. I mean, first of all, please notice that only John of the four gospel writers mentions Peter by name and then also the servant Malchus by name. You know, it's very likely that when John published his gospel, it was no longer necessary to hide Peter's name. I mean, by then, Peter had died and no action could be taken against him by the authorities. And John wants us to know what actually happened. But please also notice what Jesus says to Peter. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see, in the Old Testament, the image of the cup is one of the most powerful images that we find. You know, for instance, listen to Isaiah 51 verse 17 as Isaiah announces judgment on Israel because of her sins. He says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There are other Old Testament references like that. The cup is a horrible image. It's as if there was a cup full of wrath and horror that comes when the day of judgment comes. And God calls the nations to drink it. And if they refuse, still, he says, you must drink it. But here Jesus claims his willingness to drink. Shall I not drink this, he says. In other words, using his authority, he not only defends his disciples, but he also uses his authority for the embracing of the cup of suffering. He will become the one who pays the penalty for the sins of his people. He will be their sin bearer. That's the heart of the cross. He chose to suffer, to bear the punishment for our sins. It's called the penal substitutionary atonement. It means that Christ willingly bore our penalty. He substituted himself, and he became our atoning sacrifice. You know, we're going to return to that theme as we go through this passage, but here I want us to notice it's an authority that has been given to Christ. But then comes something else which isn't mentioned here, but it's mentioned later on in this same chapter. Remember that Jesus is brought before Pilate, and he's there asked, are you the king of the Jews? In other words, what authority do you claim? And you remember Jesus' answer. He says his kingdom is not of this world, for if it were, his servants would be fighting to prevent his arrest. What you have here is a third level of authority. It's his authority to reject the sword to defend himself. Jesus simply will not permit his servants to pick up the sword to defend the cause of the kingdom. Now, we're going to say more about that later, but this is a point that we should not lose. Christ came to suffer and die, and so to redeem lost humanity, not to pick up a sword and conquer lost humanity. His authority calls men and women in love. His authority does not create armies to go out and conquer in his name. And I love to point out that in the Middle Ages, as Islam rose and conquered Jerusalem 
and took so many so-called holy sites away from the Christian faith that the medieval church's response was to raise up armies and to call for a holy crusade to repel Islam and recapture Jerusalem for Christ. And every time we sent a soldier to fight for the cross, we only damaged our witness and hardened our enemies rather than won our enemies to Christ. In our day, you know, the true spirit of Jesus is to send missionaries and emissaries of love and grace into the Islamic world. And people are responding to that kind of a gospel. And it must be so among all of us who call the name of Jesus our Lord. We must not seek political power, nor the power to coerce people against their wills, rather the power to speak words of a kingdom of love that brings repentance for sins and the gift of eternal life. The kingdom of God goes forward through love and sacrifice and suffering and dying. The amazing force of Christ is seen in loving our enemies and blessing those who persecute us. That's a surprising message that John wants us to see. He wants us to know that the authority and suffering are not in the opposite ends of the spectrum. He wants us to see that Jesus deliberately chose to suffer and lay down his life by his own authority. And what does that mean for us? It's counterintuitive to take the place of weakness. Are we really to understand the kingdom of God advances not with the triumph of the sword, but rather by suffering and dying and offering forgiveness? And the answer is yes, that's the message of Easter. It's the message of peace and love and grace, and not the message of inflicting violence on the foes of God. Thanks for your message, John. John. How do we apply in our world today a kingdom of God that moves forward in love and sacrifice when it's so contrary to the world we live in today? You know, I I suspect, uh, Ben, it is contrary, of course, to the world that we live in today. It's always been contrary to the world. I mean, we have always believed that we go forward by defeating our enemies, by, you know, by doing everything that we can to stand victorious at the top of the hill when it's all said and done. Um, But Jesus on the top of the hill is not one who dominates, but rather one who loves, one who gives his life for, and it calls us to live in the same way. We have to adopt the value of Jesus, reject the values of every single culture of this world in all seasons of time, and embrace Christ. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Easter, according to the Gospel of John, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You know, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know how the ministries or ministry resources of Back to the Bible Canada are impacting your life. What you found most beneficial. Is there a specific resource or medium, a message that has brought blessing and encouragement into your life? Not only do your notes and emails offer encouragement, but they allow us to know how we can provide effective Bible teaching ministry. These are challenging days, and we believe the church is strongest when we commit ourselves to being people of the Word. Our mission is to build you up in God's Word and to grow faithful disciples for His church. So touch base, would you? Email us at info at backtothebible.ca or visit us at backtothebible.ca and click on contact and leave your message there. We're so grateful for all you do to support this Bible teaching ministry. For more information or to send a gift, 
call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.